The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 to 41, and it can be found on page 19 in the Black Bibles. But Peter, standing with eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. That is a mouthful, that text. Uh, I spent a, a lot of time this past week um, trying to figure out if I could cut it, you know, but it's a coherent sermon from Peter. I'm not saying it's going to be a coherent sermon from me, but it's a coherent sermon from Peter, and it's kind of hard to, to cut it anywhere. So uh, we're just going to dive into the whole thing. And welcome, first of all. My name's Clay Holland. If I don't know you, I haven't met you, I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. Um, our senior pastor, John Trapp, is suffering for the Lord in Telluride at a wedding that he was asked to perform uh, like a year ago or something like that. And so here I am early in his tenure. Um, so hopefully I don't forget how to do this. So let's pray and uh, look into God's word together. Father, we do thank you that your promises are real and true and they are for all that you call to yourself. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be living and active in this time, drawing us to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, we had a baptism in the first service this morning, and as I was preparing for the baptism, I started thinking about something. One of the things that I really love the most about being a pastor, one of the most fun things that I get to do pastorally, is visit uh, families after they have children, you know, after they have babies in the hospital. And I realized this morning, if I was doing the math correctly, that in, you know, kind of the church calendar season of COVID tide, um, I had not been to a hospital visit for the birth of a child since January or February of 2020. Um, so coming up on two years, you know, since I'd actually been in a hospital to visit a, a new family, I was like, it kind of made me sad because I, I love doing that. And one of the things that I always do when I visit these families is that I will pray for them, and I'll I'll pray that that the that the child when they when they leave the hospital and they go into their home that they'll have a smooth transition. You know, whether it's their first child or they've got kids at home or whatever, I'll always say that prayer and. And sometimes after I do that, they'll look at me kind of funny, like, why do, you, why do you pray that? I mean, like, this is a really happy, you know, occasion. Look, this is all Norman Rockwelly right here. We've got to go home. It's going to be great. I mean, what? I read all the books. I mean, you know, what could possibly go wrong? And I just basically smile and say, you know, I think I'll just keep praying. Um, I'll just keep praying. Because I have heard the stories. I've, well, I've experienced the stories, and I've heard the stories. I heard a story about one family at this church. This was actually a really good idea. They had a three-year-old daughter at home. They had just had a baby, a little boy, and they were bringing that boy back to their house to meet his big sister for the very first time. And their idea was that um, he, you know, the three-day-old baby or the two-day-old baby, would buy and bring a gift to his big sister. Something that she had wanted for a long time. Something that she had asked her parents for a lot. And so this baby was going to bring a present to his, 
three-year-old sister. And so they get home and, hey, I want you to meet your little brother. And he brought, look what he brought you. And she was so excited about this present. She took it and she ran to her room and she played with it. And then she came back out and she looked at the little baby who was still there in the house. And, and, ba- and, and she said this, she said to this little baby in the bouncy seat, or whatever it was in, I don't remember what two-day, it's been a long time, but um, thank you for the present. Can you please go home to your own mommy and daddy now? It was a good strategy. It was a great idea, but ultimately to no avail. Normal life, right? There are always bumps in the road when there are transitions, when, when there are changes, always. And certainly, this was true in the very, very, very early church, the, the early, early days of the church that we're reading about right now. So last week in the passage that John preached from, what we saw was that when all of the people were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world who were there to, to, to worship God, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles and they spoke the good news of the gospel in the languages of all of the people who had gathered there. Now this was a miracle. Because they didn't know those languages before the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, was poured out upon them. But these were known languages of the world. They preached the gospel and people heard about Jesus in their own native tongues. And a lot of the people who were there in Jerusalem saw that happen. And the text says they were amazed. But then, as always, there were cynical doubters. They, had already, they were pretty comfortable with the way things were religiously in their lives and they made a different judgment. They said, they're filled with new wine. These people are drunk and early in the morning, it's only nine o'clock. Shame on them. Don't listen to them. These are bad people. So that's when Peter, the apostle who had experienced in his life so much failure but had also experienced in his life so much of God's grace, stood up to speak. And he said, no, no, they are not drunk, as you say. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is the third hour. But then basically he's saying, you're tragically misunderstanding what is happening here. Tragically. Because if you don't see it rightly, and you don't understand it, and you don't enter into this message with a true sense of urgency, the consequences are going to be dire because what you are seeing played out in front of your very eyes is the fulfillment of the scriptures. God's promises that he made generations upon generations upon generations ago are coming to fruition right now. And you're experiencing it in your life. Don't mistake it. And whatever you do, don't miss it. But the question I think for us is this, what is it? What is it that we are called not to miss or to mistake? And that's the point of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. The answer simply is is, is not to miss that salvation is in and through Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And we see first the message of salvation and second the way of salvation. Now salvation is a word that I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page when I say it is and can be kind of a churchy word. But I use it here because Peter uses it in his sermon. It's in verse 40. And we'll talk more about this as we go along. But the question of salvation has to do with the admission of one's guilt because of their sin 
in the face of a holy God. And this sense of fear and trepidation that your guilt in the face of a holy God may have dire consequences. Something that you actually might need to be rescued from, saved from. That is salvation. So to be saved uh, from the consequences of your guilt before God. That's what I mean when I use this word because that's what I think Peter means when he uses it. Let's see how it plays out in the passage. And first we'll look at the message of salvation. Now there's a subtle component to this text. And I actually want to spend a decent amount of time on it here because it's important. Um, And the subtle component that sort of lays at the foundation of this whole message that Peter offers here in Acts chapter 2 is this. All of the Bible, all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. All of the Bible is about Jesus. Now, how can I say that? I mean, truth is, I'm not really saying it. Peter is saying that, and, and it's important to think about this for just a minute. Um, because this, this sermon that he preaches on the day of Pentecost is not very long after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The, the, what we know is the New Testament has not been written. So when Peter is preaching a sermon from the Bible, he's preaching what would be known as an expository sermon from the Bible. What's the Bible? The Bible is what we now understand as the Old Testament. Those are the scriptures that he has. He would simply call it the scriptures. And he uses two particular Old Testament passages as his sermon text. One is the prophecy of Joel, and the other is David's words from a couple of different psalms. And Peter explicitly says that these Old Testament texts are about Jesus. Now I bring this up because the consistency of the Bible... The idea that the story of the Bible is all pointing us to Christ is something that a lot of people don't believe. They kind of believe that there are two different Bibles. The Old Testament is one Bible. The New Testament is another Bible. And frankly, a lot of people think that these two different Bibles, quote unquote, present two different gods. There's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. And, you know, and it's very confusing. And, and this may be something that you don't actually confess or think, but you may live this way. I, I remember back in the spring and early summer, Shannon and I were taking a bunch, we were moving our kids and things like that. We were taking a bunch of road trips. We were listening uh, for a couple of these trips to the audiobook version of Matthew McConaughey's autobiography called Green Lights. Um, and now I'm going to stop parenthetically and say, mentioning a book is not the same as endorsing a book. Before I move on, we all have to kind of nod in agreement. Maybe you have to sign a disclaimer or an NDA or something. You know, it's not the same thing because some of this book is kind of hard to read. There's some some difficult parts of it. But it's fun to listen to, you know, this kind of Matthew McConaughey kind of weird Austin thing going on, you know, all the way throughout it. But I bring that up because he explicitly said this. And this is something that I think a lot of your friends believe, even if you don't believe it. Because he was talking about his early childhood home, uh, the home that he grew up in as a, a little boy. And he says explicitly, he said, my parents believed in the God of the Old Testament. My parents believed in the God of the Old Testament, the God of discipline, the God of rules, you know, the God of wrath. Is that how you think of the Bible? Two distinct and not complementary stories that actually present two different, distinct gods. 
The God of the Old Testament being the God of judgment and the God of wrath and the God of rules. The God of the New Testament being the God of love and the God of grace. I ask that question because Peter does not believe this. Peter doesn't believe this. He believes that there is one coherent message of salvation from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. And it all points us to Jesus Christ. And there are two things in particular these Quote, these passages from his scriptures tell us about Christ. First, the humility of Jesus, and second, the exaltation of Jesus. So first, the humility of Jesus is required for your salvation. You can see this in verses 22 and 23 when he's talking about his, his death. And there, there are a couple of things that we learn there. One is that Peter says Jesus is a man. Now, he's not only a man, and that's the point of why this is so amazing. Uh, in verse 22, Peter says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Uh, and a huge part of the humility of Jesus is just this. The fact that Jesus is God himself, very God of very God, as we've already confessed in the early part of our worship service, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus became like us in every way yet was without sin. It's amazing the links that Jesus went to for your salvation. And second, Jesus suffered death. Not only did Jesus suffer death, Peter says in verse 23 that it was God's plan for him to suffer death. That, that, there was, that is God's plan of salvation. The death of Jesus is God's plan of our salvation. There's no salvation apart from the death of Jesus. But you know what? I think a lot of people stop right here with their understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. A lot of people stop with the death of Jesus on the cross. But there's more to the story than Jesus' humility. There is also Jesus' exaltation. In fact, Peter spends the bulk of his sermon talking about the amazing things that happened in the life of Jesus after his death. The first is his resurrection. That death was not strong enough to contain Jesus. And to make that point, Peter uh, points to one of the great heroes of the Bible. King David. There was nobody greater than King David. But what does Peter say about him? He died, he was buried, and we know where his grave is. It's still there right now. We can go look at it. You know, and we'll find him in that grave. That's what Peter is saying in his sermon. But he's saying this about Jesus. It is not that way with Jesus. His tomb is there. We know where that is. We know where they laid him. But Jesus is not there. God raised him up. And Peter is saying, I stand here and all these other apostles stand here at great danger to ourselves, by the way, testifying to you that we are eyewitnesses of this fact. That we saw him, that we touched him, that we talked to him, that this Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. He's alive. They're proclaiming as eyewitnesses the resurrection of Jesus. And after Jesus was raised, he ascended into heaven. King David being still in the grave, never ascended into heaven. He is still awaiting his resurrection when Jesus comes back. But he wrote in the Psalms about one who would come after him and one who did come after him. David writes Psalm 110, 
which is quoted in Peter's sermon in verses 34 and 35. And these are, these are actually amazing words if you actually think about them contextually. David said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, in the time that David would have written these words, for anybody who was a king to say that there is somebody out there that is stronger and more powerful than I am was not good for your job security because that person was going to come and find you. But here is David, the king over all of Israel, saying there's one greater than he is. No king would ever say that. No human king would ever say that. But that's what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's prophesying about Jesus. You know, a lot of people ask me from time to time why I became a pastor. Uh, In my neighborhood, you know, we've lived in our house now for 16 years um, you know, el- we did elementary school, middle school, high school. I coached all the sports, you know, from t-ball to, you know, to whatever. Um, and so inevitably I would meet a whole bunch of people in our neighborhood and we would be talking and, you know, and they would say, okay, so what is it that you do? And I would think to myself, okay, this conversation's about to stop. And, um, I would say, I'm a pastor. And they would do two things. The first thing that they would do inevitably is apologize for cursing, um, in which case I'd say like, I, yeah, I've never heard those words before until you just uttered them in my presence. But the second thing is if they were brave and we continued along a conversation is they would say, that's kind of weird, you know, path of vocations. Like, why'd you do that? Um, and I think that what they was in the back of their mind is they think that I'm kind of like a religious social worker, that I have a passion to, to, to help people and, you know, just to help make people into good people and things like that. And I, I do like to help people, you know, but that is not why I'm a pastor at all. And so I would tell them, there's two reasons I think that, that I'm a pastor. First is I believe that the Lord called me into this vocation. And that call has been ratified by, you know, people all along the way for, you know, a long time now. But that call points to the second reason. And it's that I, I'm simply here to testify about something. My whole vocational life is simply to bear witness to something. And that is that Jesus Christ is not dead, but Jesus Christ is alive. He has been raised on the third day and he has ascended into heaven. And he sits at right hand of God the Father and he will come again. And the way of salvation is simply to put your faith and your trust in him. The resurrection of Jesus is the one and only validation of the God of the Bible. It is the one and only validation of the truth of the scriptures. It is the one and only validation of the faith of the church. And Peter, along with many other eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, suffered horrendously violent deaths, never wavering from that eyewitness testimony. Jesus was, I mean, not Jesus, Peter was crucified upside down, going to his death, never wavering that he had seen and touched and spoken to the resurrected Jesus. They were blessed in being able to see and believe, but Jesus told uh, the apostle Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe this until I see it, until I put my fingers in the nail scars. And Jesus said to him, you see and you believe, blessed are those who believe 
yet do not see. You know, right before Shannon and I got engaged, we got engaged right, uh, on Thanksgiving night at her parents' house in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The day before that, we were driving down from St. Louis and we stopped in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is where my aunt lived, and my parents came up. And so we did kind of a pre-Thanksgiving, you know, dinner uh, at my aunt's house. And around that table, my parents were there, my aunt, my cousins. Things, um, generally speaking, turn to embarrassing stories. Does that happen in your family? You know, it, it kind of turned into like, I'm going to tell a bunch of embarrassing stories about Clay. And one of the embarrassing things that my mom, you, you know, wanted to share in front of my soon-to-be fiancé was the fact, and this is actually true, that when I was a kid, when I was growing up, that whatever persona I would want to take, whatever like I was going to play, you know, as a little kid, I was going to dress that part. So if I woke up on a Saturday and I wanted to go outside with my soccer ball and play soccer, I wasn't just going to go outside with my soccer ball. I was going to put on my New York Cosmos Pele jersey, you know, and my Pele pony cleats. He wore pony cleats when he played for the Cosmos. I always find that to be weird. Uh, and, and I would go outside and play, play soccer. If I wanted to switch, because I would, I would get bored after about 15 minutes, and I wanted to play football, I wouldn't just put the ball away and grab my football. I'd come in, I would take off my Pele jersey, I would put on my shoulder pads, I would put on my, uh, my Manning, my Archie Manning New York Saints jersey, I'd put on my uh, New York Saints helmet that my mom hand-painted the fleur-de-lis on, which was pretty awesome and impressive, and I would go out and play football, you know, for 15 minutes. And if I got sick of playing football, I'd come in, I'd throw all that stuff down, and if I wanted to be a cowboy, I'd put on my boots, and I'd put on my hats. And, you know, that's just how I spent my time. That's how I did those things. But here's the point. I was always taking on the persona by dressing the part, but I wasn't any of those things, Right? I wasn't any of those things. I could put on an Archie Manning New York Saints jersey, but it would be a real mistake to put me under center in 1979, you know, in the Superdome against another NFL team. I could put on my Pele number 10 jersey and pretend to be him, but I wasn't as quite as good at soccer as Pele was. I could dress like a cowboy, but I'd never ridden a horse. I don't think I'd even seen a horse, you know. Uh, So you could easily find out that I was none of those things by testing me on them, right? And Jesus could take on the persona, the claim of being the Son of God, the only Savior. He could say it like he did. But if he remained in the grave, that claim would have been irrefutably demonstrated to be a lie it would have been a lie the resurrection of Jesus validates the claim that he is mighty to save and so in many ways the resurrection of Jesus is the message of salvation because without Jesus's resurrection there is no salvation and it's a message that necessitates a response The hearers of that first service understood the first sermon. They understood that. It says, the text says, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? When they heard Peter's message. What shall we do? And the answer to this question speaks to the way of salvation. Do you know what would have been the saddest thing that could have possibly happened here? Jesus presents this sermon The inhabitants believe it, and they're cut to the heart. They're convicted for their sin, and they say, okay, what do we do? And Peter says, I don't know, man. Good luck. I mean, 
y'all are bad people. He's, he did say that. You know, y'all put Jesus to death. That's a bad thing. Maybe what you need to do is you need to do a lot of really good things. If you do a whole lot of really good things, maybe it'll counter that kind of really, really bad thing that you did. And maybe it'll kind of tip the scales. You know, just like get him leave even. If you do enough good things, maybe it'll tick it up, you know, one notch and then you'll be okay. He doesn't say that at all. He is not cruel to them and he does not lie to them. He says three things about the way of salvation. Honestly, if you're sitting, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, so, so how do I do this thing? Like, how do I become a Christian? You know, how, what does it really mean to, 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 to come into a state of not following Jesus to, to following him? How do I become a Christian? Well, Peter tells us here in this passage, this is the first, is conviction. The text tells us that when the inhabitants of Jerusalem heard Peter's message of a crucified, resurrected, and exalted Savior, they were cut to the heart. You ever been cut to the heart? Have you ever been, have you ever been so convicted by something that you have a visceral, physical reaction to it? You kind of curl up just a little bit, you know? That's, they were cut to the heart. They realized that they were guilty. That they were guilty before God. And some of you may know exactly what this means. You may be experiencing it right now. You may be living a life right now where, you're, where that's, that conviction of your sin and your guilt before a holy God is kind of chasing you and you're trying to stiff arm it and keep it at bay. You know, maybe you're trying to kind of stiff arm it through, you know, um, fitness or through beauty or through success or through the material things that we can kind of, you know, sort of surround ourselves with so that we don't have to feel those things all the time. But some of you might hear something like this and think, I don't really know what you're talking about. And that's a dangerous place to be. We do live in a world that doesn't want us dwelling on the things of God. We live in a culture where we can be so busy. We can be so distracted. We can be so entertained. We can be so materially comfortable that we can build a wall of complacency around our hearts. You know, like a padded cell that nothing kind of gets into. And you're not allow yourselves to feel really anything at all much less the potential conviction of your sin that the Lord is trying to impress upon you my encouragement to you today is let those masks drop for a little while even pray ask God are you what are you trying to say something to me are you trying to lead me somewhere what why am I running you know so hard about uh, so many things because if you let those masks drop and you're completely honest with yourself and you feel everything that you feel, you can ask yourselves the question, is everything that I'm pursuing in this life, everything that I think is making ultimate meaning, everything that I'm thinking is making me truly happy, is it working? Am I really at peace? Can I ever rest? Or maybe you're cut to the heart with conviction of your sin. But a conviction of sin is bad news, really good news follows. Because Peter is not cruel, nor does he lie. He answers the question, what shall we do? Repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. To repent simply means to turn around. 
you're walking down a path of, the, of rebelling against God, of, of not being in relationship with him, of holding him at bay. To repent means to simply turn around and to walk toward him. But of course, Peter's just spent a whole bunch of time saying, you just can't mosey up to a holy, holy, holy God. Somebody has to go with you. And that one that goes with you to bring you into relationship with God is none other than Jesus Christ, your Savior. And this original context in the first century, this repentance and the new scope of salvation that is offered by Jesus was signified through baptism. In the Old Testament, the sign of God's promises was circumcision, but circumcision was limited. It was, it was limited in a couple of ways. One, it was limited because only males could undergo circumcision. But secondly, it was only for the people of Israel. But baptism now is a new sign that signifies that the gospel, the good news, is for everyone, for the world, for people from every tribe, nation, and language under heaven, for men and women. The scope is increased. It's transformative news. It's hard for me to believe this, but yesterday, as I'm sure you know, was the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. And, you know, I'm of, a, of, of an age where I can very clearly remember a lot about that day. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that a plane had crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, our family was living in Oak Forest at the time. Our office, this is old school Christ the King right here. Our office was on Edlow. Uh, I was basically on the corner of Edlow and West Alabama, and I was driving from my house to the office, and I had exited 610 on San Philippi, I'd turned left, and I was sitting at the stoplight at San Philippi, right under 610, where 610 goes over San Philippi, and I was listening to NPR, and I don't know, whatever story they were talking about, somebody broke in and they said, we have just heard a report that a commuter plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And I thought to myself, that sounds horrible. Oh my goodness. And then they went back to whatever they were doing and I started driving. And by the time I got to the corner of Edlow in West Alabama, the story had become clear. It was not a commuter plane at all. It was a commercial jetliner and we, the United States, were under attack. And I do think that you have to be a certain age to realize how much of our lives changed with the declaration of that news. The reality of that event and the declaration of that news. Getting on an airplane has never been the same since that day. If, if you carry a purse and you're trying to get into an Astros game, it's gotten a lot harder since September 11, 2001. That news changed the world. It really did. It changed our lives. But do you know what? As momentous and as transformative as the events of September the 11th, 2001 were, they pale in comparison to the transformative impact of the humility and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And that is the news that we and I testify to you today as being true good news. Are you cut to the heart by it? If you are, there's good news for you. Repent, believe, trust, have new life in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for 
the work that you did to give us new life now and new life for eternity. Would we believe it? Maybe for many of us today in this place for the very first time, but maybe those of us who do believe but have gotten complacent and need to believe it again and own it again and be convicted by it again to be renewed in our hearts and our lives by you. We pray that you would do that work by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.